0: Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories with the AHRC New Generation Thinkers Scheme. For this podcast, I spoke to Dr. Jonathan Healy, Jonathan is a historian of the 17th century, and he is working on a book at the moment which encapsulates the entire century and all of the shifts and turns and twists and uh, various kings and various social shifts that happen the civil war a plague a fire so there's so much to talk about and jonathan amazingly manages to encapsulate this entire century in a gripping and exciting conversation for this podcast and I found it absolutely fascinating to listen to him and listen to his energy burst forth and he tells the story of the 17th century with such lyricism and it feels like an exciting period of history that I think that you will all feel equally as engaged with as I did. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Jonathan Healy, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. It's lovely to it's lovely to be on. Lovely to lovely to see you even even if it is on this kind of weird sort of witchcraft electronic witchcraft. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we're going to talk about the 17th century and trying to talk about the 17th century in a nutshell because this is the focus of your forthcoming book. And you because you so kindly sent me the proposal for your book, I have read a bit about it. You have amazingly managed to condense a huge amount of information into one book. And so we're going to try and talk about some of these themes within the scope of of the podcast. And the 17th century itself was, you know, I had some understanding of it before and I've worked with you before on it, but it was an incredibly tumultuous century. I mean, there were various kings, a civil war, the republic, it was a rise in the print press. So let's just start at the beginning for people who aren't quite so familiar with it. James Stuart inherits the throne and that is the start of the Stuart dynasty and how we you know perceive the the century as a whole. So so what was what was happening around this period? What about what about the people? What were the major movements going on and how did the country look around the around the ascension of James Stuart?
2: Right, it's a um, a great series of questions, but as you, and as you say, it's a sort of you know, it is always a challenge to kind of squeeze all these kind of things into uh, uh, into one book or indeed one podcast. There's about five and a half million English people in the middle of the 17th century; it's about four million at the start. They mostly live in the countryside. They all believe in God, mostly. A, a proportion of them can read, a rising proportion of them can read. And they were absolutely, you know, they were, they were absolutely not stupid peasants, as sometimes, um, as sometimes people, people think. So what we're looking at in, in England in the 17th century is uh, an exceptionally complicated society and one which is going through a series of really, really quite um, drastic changes. Those changes um, including economic change, the economy is, is developing, it's becoming more sophisticated, there's um, an increasing number of people who are involved in industry, involved in trade, all that kind of thing. It's also becoming more religiously complicated, I think it's fair to say. Lots of people are familiar with the Reformation in the Tudor period. Let's say we're in 1603. James I comes down to, uh, uh, to, from Scotland to uh, take up his throne in England. One of the first things he's presented with is a petition by um, these people called Puritans. Puritans being people who believe that the Elizabethan church settlement, the Reformation church settlement, hasn't gone far enough and there's more that needs to be done. But at the same time, within two years, he's also faced with a conspiracy uh, by some of his Catholic subjects, uh, the, the what we what we call the gunpowder Plot so the the religious landscape is is complicated and it's complicated enough <laughs> in in the reign of James the first in some ways under under James the first it becomes slightly more settled but then as the century goes on it becomes even more complicated firstly by um, the rise of a group within the English church which pushes for more kind of complicated ceremonies. These are people um, which uh, are associated with Charles I, uh, who is James's son, um, and, and his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. But then, of course, you get the Civil War and the whole thing blows up. um, And you get uh, uh, the development of loads and loads of these kind of um, small, uh, radical religious sects, of which the most important are people like the Quakers. And by 1660, there's as as many Quakers in in England as there are Catholics. So in terms of religion, you're sort of picking things up from the Reformation. You're kind of mixing it up again um, and you're throwing out all this kind of much greater religious diversity by the end of by the end of the period so there's that one of the other things is that it's uh, an increasingly news driven culture One of the most important innovations in 17th century England, although it wasn't an English innovation, it was imported from abroad, was the the periodical newspaper. Um, And, you know, from the 1620s, when there's suddenly a big war on the continent, you get these um, news books which uh, which deal with foreign news because that's all they're allowed to do. And then the Civil War happens in the 1640s and suddenly you get um, regular newspapers um, in uh, being published in London and in Oxford, and they, they kind of create this and they cater towards this thirst for regular news. Um, it has to be said that their their relationship with you know factual truth, whatever that is 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 uh, somewhat variable as it perhaps is today, but it, it creates a very very different news environment where ordinary people, particularly in the capital, particularly in London, and particularly amongst the sort of middling sort of people, um, are thirsty for information thirsty for politics thirsty for all kinds of um all kinds of new uh, new things and that's just to scratch the surface <laughs>
1: yeah i mean it must be so if, you know as you, you began with talking about religion and i think that that is it's obviously um an extremely conflicting period for both protestants and catholics and especially when you have james coming and inheriting the throne but he comes from a um, his mother was, was catholic obviously mary mary queen of scots and so it's a really complicated dynamic between the, I suppose, the suspicion that he's going to um, empathise and sympathise with the with the Catholic proportion of of, of England, but then there's obviously the the, the the Protestants that he's trying to keep on side as well. And as you say, that emerges within the the Gunpowder Plot. I mean, so was there a was there a particularly strong social hierarchy at this point? So you know, was there a was there a large sense of poor versus wealthy? So around this time, am I right in thinking that the, the, the group, the levellers, um, emerged and they represented this dynamic, this interplay between the, the wealthy and the, and the poor in England? Um, who were the levellers?
2: Um, yes, I mean, lo- loads of interesting questions there. Um, I, I'm actually going to take things back a little bit um, to w- one of the first things I said, which is th- uh, about population. Um, and the population of England is growing in this period, right up to the middle of the 17th century. That may seem like slightly a, a slightly kind of weird lead into the levellers, but if you think about it this way, what that's doing is creating more pressure on resources, um, and some people do very, very well out of that. Um, the sort of middling sort, the the um, the wealthy farmers, the yeomers, the William Shakespeare's, if you like, um, or even to a point, the sort of the Cromwell family, although Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell himself actually is sort of, you know, is struggling a bit financially. Um, those groups are doing very, very well. But um, society is, um, as one historian puts it very evocatively, filling up from the bottom. There's an increasing number of people in really quite severe poverty. Um, so I think the way, one of the ways that we should think about the 17th century is it's a period where... Amongst, even amongst ordinary people, so amongst um, peasants, shopkeepers, um, townspeople, um, the, the, the wealthy are becoming wealthier and the poor are becoming really, really poor. And that creates a lot of really kind of dangerous challenges for, uh, for, for, for society as a whole. The, and the levelers do fit into this, but in slightly weird ways. What the levelers were was uh, they were um, a group. Of political and, to an extent, religious radicals who developed in the 1640s in London, um, and who also put down quite significant roots in the uh, Parliamentarian army and the, the new model army, and that then led to you know wh- when the Parliamentarians won the Civil War, um, they then had to decide what to do with the uh, what to do with the the the, you know, the political settlement, and you know this in itself is an amazing thing about the period because instead of just going well obviously, we just go back to what we had before, they actually start to think, well, is there a better way? Is there a way that we can improve the constitution? Um, And as part of those discussions, the levelers kind of really sort of barge in, if you like, to the discussions about the future of the country. And they argue not just that the people as represented in Parliament are um, sovereign; they're they're where power comes from. Um, But the the sovereignty of the people overrides Parliament, and that it should be a check on Parliament. It's a very interesting constitutional question. You know, you get in 1642. There's basically a debate between royalists and parliamentarians. The royalists think that power comes from God. The parliamentarians, broadly speaking, think that power comes from from the people. But that power is represented through Parliament. But the Levellers who include a lot of people who have been extremely badly treated by Parliament. Um, one of them, John Lilburn, gets thrown in, in prison by the House of Lords. So they, you know, they're quite cynical about the power of Parliament. They want to create another set of, of checks uh, against arbitrary power, not just from the king, but from Parliament. And the way they want to do that is, well, well, there's two things really. Firstly something, you know, very radical, which is they want to create a set of constitutional principles which will basically restrict uh, the freedom of parliament. So a, a written constitution, if you like, or at least written constitutional principles. But secondly, they want to make sure that the vote is as widely used as possible um, and is widely available as possible. So they call for reform of the franchise. In 1600, um, only a small proportion of the even, even English men uh, are able to vote. Um, there's also... Uh, only a small proportion of elections are actually contested. In most cases, the local kind of bigwigs basically just get together and say, we've decided that this guy shall be um, our MP and, um, and, and there's, there's now an what you can do about it. Um, the levelers are arguing that the franchise should be much, much more uh, widely available. Um, not necessarily everyone, although some of the levelers, famously uh, um, an army officer called Thomas Rainborough argues that, you know, all men should be able to vote. Um, most levelers are content to, to, with just saying that the vote goes to people who pay, uh, pay poor rates. So they pay for taxes towards the poor. So, so that whole kind of argument, it's about, uh, you know, it's, it's about restricting Parliament, but it's also about vesting sovereignty in the people, something which we, we sort of take for granted today, but in the 17th century was hugely contested. Now, I said that the Levellers o- occupied a sort of fairly complicated position in this social hi- hierarchy. And the reason I say that is that the Levellers were um, very much a London-based uh, organisation, and they were very much, they, they drew their strength from the, the London middle, I'm going to say middle class, but I'm going to say it carefully because it's a controversial term. Uh, other people prefer sort of middle sort, which is more contemporary. Um, but they are wealthy, youngish, usually men, although in, you know, actually had um, a large amount of um, women who supported them, um, uh, literate uh, and people who have you know done apprenticeships. They're, they're not the absolute poorest which itself is quite interesting. The poor, on the other hand, you could say that they were represented by other uh, radical groups, one of which is very, very famous. Well, two of which are very, very famous. Um, The first of which is very, very famous for representing the poor, the second of which isn't. The first is the Diggers, who were a small group of basically kind of rural communists who um, set up a camp in Surrey of all places and tried to basically abolish private property and cultivate the land in common before the locals got a bit peeved about it and called in the army to, to basically uh, move them on. But the second group who represent the poor are in some ways um, more interesting and that's the Quakers. The Quakers uh, were uh, obviously as a religious group but the radicalism of the Quakers is is in many ways sort of even even more important and certainly more lasting, and that relates in part to um, ideas about salvation because the Quakers believed that you know if you accepted the inner light, then you would be saved, and that in itself was a um, a, a very sort of radical statement because it meant that you know even the poorest person and that in- and they very much did include women. You know the Quakers were much more kind of. Um, uh, into gender equality than than virtually anyone else in, in the period. Um, that gave a much stronger role for, for for really really poorer folk. So in a sense, they they really represent the. I mean, you know, they had supporters from across the spectrum, but they were more appealing, if you like, to the really poor than than say the Leveller movement.
1: Gosh, so there is this complete mix of of so of political and social groups going on at this period so you've got the the ardent royalists who believe that the monarchy and the king is representative of God, and so you've got the you know these these guys at the top and then you've got the quakers all the way at the bottom and then somewhere in the middle is kind of the levellers and there's the parliamentarians because because when you think about the civil war and i think when most people think about the civil war they think there are these two groups there's the royalists the cavaliers and the um, parliamentarians the roundheads Um, yet there are actually all of these subgroups at play as well so this all comes then to a really messy head in the civil war and all of these groups kind of uh, come in on one another, and it all comes to a big climatic ending, and we end up with a republic. How does how does that play out, and how does that shift things for the next part of the seventeenth century?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I suppose, I mean, just to sort of go back to what you're saying a second ago. I mean, you do have all these groups, but but to an extent, they all kind of interesting. They all come out of the civil war. The civil war kind of happens because. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but it happens because the social elite can't sort out their difficulties. And as a result of that, these sort of cracks appear and you get these more radical ideas, which sort of, I mean, you know, they have precedents, definitely, but they they appear out of the, the, the political breakdown. So there were no levelers in 1639, although there were people who might have had levelerish ideas. Um, but then you get the chaos of the Civil War uh, and then that leads to um, the growth of... Sort of radical democratic ideas. The, the radicalism comes out of the political breakdown rather than the political breakdown coming out of the radicalism. So in 1649, the monarchy is abolished. The House of Lords is, uh, is abolished as being, um, you know, the Parliament declares it to be useless and dangerous, um, although one of their more radical members quips that it's, uh, the House of Lords was useless, but not dangerous. And uh, you then get a period of four years uh, of rule by uh, a single House of Commons, the, the Rump Parliament, um, followed by a short period of rule by, by so-called saints, uh, where there was uh, 140 MPs basically were, were picked by the army to, to rule England. That didn't really solve anything. So eventually you got uh, a system of kind of, let's say, quasi-monarchical system under, under Oliver Cromwell, under the Protectorate. And the Republic, A, fails, in that the you know uh, in in 1660 uh, Charles II um, the, the son of Charles I comes to the throne so it's it's in the short term it's not a successful I- experiment it's also often accused of being um insufficiently radical in that you know there are all these um groups like levelers and they're pushing for one thing and there are groups like quakers who end up getting persecuted by uh, members of the republic government and so it doesn't kind of you know it doesn't fulfill the the the, uh, the potential that it may be had and you know, especially from the from the point of view of some of the, the the religious radicals who actually believe that the apocalypse is is upon us and the end times are upon us and and Jesus is going to come back and rule. Uh, and instead, they get Oliver Cromwell, um, uh, and you know, followed by even worse. They, followed by even worse Charles II. Um, so it, it's often criticised as being you know insufficiently radical. But on the other hand, I mean, three things that are quite significant, even if they are short-lived. The first of which is that it basically kind of toys with the idea of a written constitution. So in 1653, the army produces um this uh this uh, document called the instrument of government which which basically sets up uh, the um protectorate constitution and it's a written constitution it's the first written constitution in the english-speaking world um and obviously is a kind of you know in in some ways is a sort of you know forerunner of the american constitution and you know one could note that in in the uk today we are relatively unusual that we don't have a written constitution so you know who who was on the right side of history there was it the uh, was it the republic or or was it um, was it the um uh, the, the royalists uh, so that's the first thing um the second thing is that they um they look to create a wider religious toleration than there had been before now i'm not saying that this is this is perfect uh, in, in by any stretch of the imagination it was still a pretty bad time to be a catholic and in theory uh, the book of common prayer was banned but there was certainly an assumption that although or, or there, there was certainly provision for much wider debate of, uh, of religious issues under the Republic, which, you know, is in itself a sort of, let's say, forward looking thing. Um, but the third thing is perhaps the more subtle one. The revolution itself, the, the regicide, had been a, basically a kind of an, a deeply unpopular move by a very, very small number of people connected to the army high command. There is absolutely no debate uh, that the vast majority of people in England at the time, let alone Scotland or, or Ireland, there's no debate about whether or not they wanted a regicide. The vast majority of people didn't. But the, the regicide nonetheless took place in the name of the people. Although this is kind of window dressing, actually the very act of doing it that way was important because it was a, a, a recognition or at least a statement that sovereignty resides in the people. It doesn't come from God, it comes from the people. And over the course of the 17th century, eventually that became a much more powerful argument, even though the restoration overthrew it, even though it was a short term thing. So I think the Republic has a much more, you know, it has much more interest. It's much more important than people allow it. I mean, you know, we we sort of think of it as being basically a period where the, 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 the boring old Puritans cancel football and Christmas and horse racing. Um, but actually, there's a, you know, there's a there's a there's a liberating radicalism about it, which um, which is important in the longer term development of, um, you, know, e- you know, even things like democracy. It, it, it's it's part of that story, I think.
0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
1: Yeah, there's a sense of that it that it has overshadowed monarchical history. Subsequently, I mean, how what was the reception of 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 Charles II with the people? Was it was he welcome? Was this considered to be something that was um, that was glorious, or were there people who really opposed this and wanted to cling on to that sense of republic and? And revolution and
2: change. I mean, there are a small number of people who vehemently oppose um, Charles II, and that's you know that's including sort of you know the old servants of the republic like um, John Lambert, who ends up getting thrown in prison. Um, but also, you know, quite ordinary people, you know, say things like, "Why should we have a Scot in on, on the throne when we had a you know we had Cromwell?" And 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 you know, th- so there's de- there's definitely um, there's definitely some opposition. Um, some of the religious radicals are opposed to to the restoration. But broadly speaking, the Restoration was very, very popular. We have to think about it in its immediate context, though, uh, which is that Cromwell died in September 1658. There's then a period of, um, you know, a, a year and a half of political chaos. So although the vast majority of people definitely preferred Charles II to political chaos. It's a bit harder to say that they definitely preferred monarchy to republic in in May 1660. But what I, what I think we can say is that the certainly by the the time of the Restoration, um, royalism had managed to create a, an image for itself, which was which was very very popular, and that image um, hinged on things which were more difficult under the republics and so that's things like um you know theatre things like sport things like maypoles um morris dancing it might it may amaze you to to hear was actually a an immensely politically radical and subversive act in the 1650s um it was very much a kind of form of a form of kind of covert royalism but also the book of common prayer as well um which uh, was actually quite popular um the the rituals associated with the anglican you know, church calendar were were, were popular amongst people, and the, what the republic had brought in to replace them was was seen as very very dry and and very kind of you know um, very unattractive in in many many ways. Um, so in sixteen sixty, there's certainly a kind of there's certainly a a, a a royalism which Charles is able to to play upon. Um, the the trouble is that within a few years, although that sort of royalism never goes away, Charles had managed to, or at least his government had managed to um, create quite a lot of um, unnecessary problems, um, and you know one of the things that they do is they there's very very they very quickly impose quite a strict religious code on the church. We call it the Clarendon Code after the Earl of Clarendon, although he. Um, he himself was not particularly in favour of it Charles II wasn't particularly in favour of it the trouble is that he had a a parliament full of sort of royalist hardliners who who pushed um, for this church settlement and that excluded a lot of quite moderate people um, who were not necessarily um, episcopate. they didn't necessarily agree with um, you know uh, government by bishops um, and it was very very harsh on Quakers and it was very very harsh on other forms of nonconformists. conformists um, also I mean you know people looked at charles and 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 um and in particular they looked at his failures in the um in the wars against the dutch um particularly the the second dutch war of uh, 1660 uh, in the mid 1660s and they looked at that and they compared him to Cromwell and they was and they said well you know Cromwell made us feared across Europe and Charles is just a bit of a joke really you know um, and then there's all the stuff about the sexual license at the court um, one of the I, I mean i'm absolutely fascinated by royalists I think for royalists are just as fa- I mean, you, you may you may gather that some of my sympathy is with the sort of parliamentarian radicals and I think that's probably true but I find royalists absolutely fascinating as well and in the 1650s, one of the things that the Royalists do is they try and create this image for themselves as being kind of fun-loving um, libertines um, who like dancing and drinking and, um, you know, sleeping around and everything like that. Charles I would have found this horrifying, you know, he was a very, very kind of conservative guy, quite straight-laced, but, um, but that image of the, the, you know, the roaring cavalier is one that sticks, but it, it loses quite a lot of support quite quickly, for for Charles's government, once you know once he's actually in power, you know, within a couple of years, the rumours going round about what's going on at court um, are quite damaging for Charles because you know his court is seen as being full of reprobates, and that's 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 never good. I mean, you know, say what you like about Cromwell, but they you know they, you could never say that about his about his government. Um, you know, upstarts maybe, um, horrendous Puritans perhaps, um, soldiers even worse, but they weren't reprobates. In the way that Charles II's um, court were, so he managed to kind of, he managed to kind of take this. I mean, I, I I have to say I find Charles an immensely frustrating individual. <laughs> and, and Charles I has been really badly served by um, by history because obviously what happens. I actually think Charles I was a fairly decent guy. Obviously, in the Second Civil War, he starts a sec- he starts a war. lot of people get killed but you know um i can see why he did that Um, whereas charles ii i just think is you know i i i I, I find him immensely frustrating a much less attractive character than his father anyway i digress but the the point is that within a few years that restoration regime has actually lost quite a lot of support so people actually start to look back and think well do you know what that Cromwell, he wasn't—he wasn't so bad in so many ways.
1: Yeah, I do remember reading something. I think it was a source from the, from the um, period, and it was all about some of these. Um, libertines and these cavaliers sort of defecating because they were drunk and finding it absolutely hilarious. or it was like, Yeah, it was urinating off, this, or, or out, off the balconies of taverns or something. And it was like, uh, yeah, I mean, has much changed? I'm not really sure. However, like...
2: There's a very, very famous, a very infamous case, which is uh, referred to in Samuel Pepys' diary where one, um, a member of Charles's court, basically, um, he stands on a balcony in um, Covent Garden, I think it is.
1: Yeah, I think they, this is the one I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. As he he dips his knob in a glass of wine and then gives a mock sermon and um, and you know all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I mean you know imagine looking at this as a sort of moderately serious London um, merchant with a you know a respectable um, wool export business and you think well, we're being ruled by these absolute you know and ironically enough the guy uh, the guy who did that ended up being um, an opponent of the regime. He was a he ended up being a being a Whig. He he was a um, uh, he he ended up uh, being a kind of you know. Supporter of uh, William of Orange, so uh, there you go. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, some people some people weren't as um, some people weren't as excited to be ruled by libertines as as we might necessarily expect them to have been.
1: (laughs) You mentioned William of Orange, and that's a very nice um, segue into some summing up the 17th century. So William of Orange came about in the Glorious Revolution. What what was the Glorious Revolution, and was it? Was it glorious, or <laughs> did it hurl us into the eighteenth century in total disarray <laughs> i don't,
2: i mean I don't, I, no i don 't think it was i don 't think it was glorious I mean you, you know you only have to look at the consequences in um, in ireland and 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 Scotland to a point as well um, and it 's even less i mean you know in England we tend to see it as being as being a peaceful revolution, but that 's only true to a point uh, in that it was accompanied by Quite widespread outbreaks of anti-Catholic rioting, and uh, there was uh, there were a couple of kind of, uh, albeit fairly desultory, um, skirmishes between the two the two armies when when both William and James had armies in play. One way of interpreting the Glorious Revolution is to say that there's there's nothing fundamentally wrong about the English state, um, and that it's just because James II, um, Charles's brother, um, is completely hopeless. He alienates the people who who should support uh, who who should be supporting him, um, and then that leads to his political authority collapsing, and um, and William being invited over. And that's, I suppose, the sort of his, I guess, the sort of fashionable viewpoint. Um, I actually think that what that underplays slightly is the fact that a lot of the problems of James II's reign are problems that have quite long. Standing pedigrees. Um, and, and firstly, I would say that the a lot of the problems that James has are inherited from his brother. And one in particular, which is that in the late 1670s, um, once it's become clear that um, James II is a Catholic. Uh, and once there are these completely fabricated uh, allegations of a Popish plot, um, uh, you get a crisis in, the English, uh, in English politics, which we, we call the exclusion okay. crisis. It basically kind of pulls up a load of the old issues which were, were unsettled after the, um, after the Civil War. Firstly, there's a question about, about religion and, and what do we do with Catholics and who do dissenters support and um, who should kind of Anglicans support. But secondly there's that question of sovereignty because the the the, the Whigs, um, so you get these kind of two political parties, the Whigs and the Tories, and the Whigs basically argue that in the name of um, protecting the country from a Catholic king, they should alter the, the laws of succession. So essentially you're, you're arguing for um, the sovereignty of the people. Um, at the same time, the Tories, who are their enemies, who are basically the kind of descendants of the royalists are saying that a um, you can't do this because um, power is divinely ordained by god so again it's those same issues and b we did this before in 1641 and look what happened you got ruled by an horrible bunch of puritans and and the army um, and christmas was cancelled and all this kind of horrible stuff and you couldn't have maypoles um so we absolutely shouldn't be doing this, this kind of thing now because the whigs are the direct heirs of the uh, the horrible roundheads, so the, all those issues get dredged up again, um, and the cru- he, I mean, and here's the crucial thing: in order to get out of that crisis, which becomes very serious for a short period of time, Charles's only option, or the only option that he is able to see at least, um, is to massively side with one of those parties, um, and he sides with the Tories, and he's able to kind of basically um, use the apparatus of state to to basically. Um, crushed the Whigs um, for a period of time and what that means is that by 1685 when Charles II dies what had been in 1660 a sort of unifying monarchy you know a, a monarchy for all albeit with you know with a few small exceptions had been a had become a party political monarchy it was a Tory monarchy Um, rather than a restoration monarchy by 1685 and so that means that that when James II comes to the throne and then alienates the Tories he has no basis of support there's 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 no one who wants to support him really a very small number of people who want to support him Um, so you could argue that it's um, that it's actually that, that legacy of Charles II which is so problematic for James but also and I promise i'll stop i 'll stop rattling on in a second many of the kind of longer term social issues which had destabilized things in sixteen in the 1640s so I'm thinking here about the growth of London which is a location for protests um, the the growing kind of political consciousness of the middle sort of people, um, but also perhaps more fundamentally, the rise of the press and the rise of news culture, literacy, all that kind of thing. Um, that means that it's that bit harder in the 1680s to, to hold on to a monarchy as a divine, a divine right ruler. Um, so, as I say whilst I think it's kind of fashionable amongst historians to really kind of focus on the short term, the accidents, the, the failings of James II, there's more long-term stuff going on, I think, there. And so, yeah, what, the Glorious Revolution, I don't think it's especially glorious. Um, it is an important step to, towards, uh, I'm not going to say it's an important step towards democracy, but I, it's an important step in that long journey towards popular sovereignty Um, But it also I think it has longer term uh, causes than 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 some people would would admit to.
1: Jonathan, you've done remarkably well. It's summarising.
2: I rattled on. Sorry, there's too much lecturer mode there, I think. (laughs) I feel like
1: we could have taken one small point from some of the aspects of the century that you talked about and create an entire podcast just from that alone. I mean, I I am quite convinced that the uh, 17th century was a jam-packed century (laughs) of social, political... Change of of, um, of revolution and there's so much that we didn't even touch. And I'm you know I'm conscious that we skimmed through you know these big events like I don't know the Great Fire of London and um, yeah. and the Great Plague, but yeah. you know all of those little nuggets people. couldn't... England's
2: look- last ever famine was in the 17th century. Roots of the welfare state, all this kind of stuff. But still. We have twenty-five minutes, so
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, but people can look forward to that with your with your forthcoming book. Are you allowed to? Um, are you allowed to mention the title and, and roughly when it's going to be out? Uh, it's
2: uh, it, it will be called either the Blazing World or a Blazing World, um, depending on um, uh, a, a debate in my head. But it will, should be out in uh, around about this time next year, uh, published by uh, Bloomsbury and um, not in the US
1: that's so exciting and um how appropriate either i mean whatever each other title you go for is extremely appropriate because it was um it was a certainly a blazing world and um a lot of uh, blazing topics to to discuss thank you so much for coming on and um we'll have to look out for your for your book this time next year hopefully in better circumstances yep.
2: Yes. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's always fun to, to record these things and uh, have an opportunity to gabble on. Yeah. <laughs> thank you.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods